Welcome to a podcast called Intrepid. My name is Craig Forces. I'm here with Stephanie Carvin in my office at the University of Ottawa Faculty of Law. It's cold. It's very cold today in Ottawa. We're recording this on a Friday, January 17th. It will be released sometime in the week to come. And this, as promised, is our deep dive into some of the international law issues, Stephanie, that we promised our listeners we would address stemming from events in Iraq in the contest between the United States and Iran. Uh, the most famous was, of course, the missile droning of an Iranian general, Soleimani, on January 2nd. On January 8th, a response from Iran involving missile strikes that include, tragically, the downing of a Ukrainian international airline aircraft, killing a number of Canadian citizens and an even larger number of people bound for Canada. So we're going to talk about these events through the optic of international law, appreciating that there's a real human consequence to this story. Right. Um, and we had also talked about having Tama on the podcast, but I think two things happened. First, uh, the story just keeps on changing, and uh, Tama just keeps being on TV, so we're giving him a bit of a break. Uh, he also did a podcast with a, a good friend of ours, uh, Dave Perry, from the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. Um, so he, you know, if you're interested in his take on consequences uh, for the region, you can go listen to that podcast. It's quite good. The uh, other thing is that, you know, we will probably have him on uh, to talk about the longer term consequences. We're not a breaking news kind of podcast. We try to do the in-depth scholarly analysis. And you and I were talking before we started taping. This series of events could actually be its own academic course. Like there's just so much here to unpack just on the legal side. So I'm just going to let you do most of the talking, Craig, and I'll probably nod along. And yeah, um, you, you could definitely teach an entire course on use of force. So the Latin expression, use ad bellum, when it's appropriate to use military force in international relations, uh, as well as at least a subset of what's known as use in bellow, that is the sorts of violence that, that's permissible in an armed conflict situation. And so our job today is as efficiently as possible to march through what we see is some of the key facts looked at from the legal perspective, as well thereafter, some of the governing legal principles and then we'll apply those governing legal principles to those facts. And so we're going to structure this a little bit like our our much more lighthearted Christmas episode when we talked about the prospect of an armed conflict between Santa Claus and Boss Elf. Unfortunately, we now have a much more acute, much more immediate real world and tragic example. situation. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, this is the other thing, too. The other thing we had to struggle with is when to start this, of course, because... Um, you know, part of the problem is that I've noticed in the media is that a lot of this is, well, whose fault is this? When did this start? And I mean, honestly, we could go back to the period of the Shah if you really, really wanted to. But I think for the, you know, I think what we need to do is just kind of look at, at, at things that is basically how they've unfolded in the last couple of weeks, but also with a reminder that, you know, and you can go back and listen to our podcast on Iran. We did a couple of them last year. There had been growing tension in the region for some time. There had, of course, been uh, attacks on shipping in the region. Uh, there was a number of, of hostile acts. There was actually, of course, the... Um, there was an attack on a, a Saudi American oil field uh, with drones that kind of took out that oil field. So there's been a, increasing tensions in that region. But I think what we want to do is just kind of focus on the fact pattern really as of late December of 2019. Right. And I think the reason we're going to start with December 27th, the December 27th event, which we'll talk about momentarily, is is the one that, at least in popular discussion, is the starting point for this latest series of events. But also from a legal perspective, 
I think Tom and I in the past, Thomas Janot has referred to the Iranian tactic in the region as salami slicing, just sort of walking up to the line, but not across the line in terms of use of force or attempting to do so. Uh, I think the issue now is whether the line was crossed in terms of salami slicing in a way that changed the legal analysis. Uh, I think the other issue we're going to have to talk about is whether that line gets reset after each one of these events. So let's right. let's let's start talking about the the factual backdrop here. So we're going to start with December 27. And for listeners, they're probably aware that on the 27th of December, there was a rocket attack on an Iraqi base, killing a U.S. civilian contractor and wounding several U.S. and Iraqi military service members. Now, at the time, attribution was unclear. So if you look at the reporting on 27 December, it wasn't clear who was the antagonist who had shot these rockets. It could have been ISIL, right, because there's the remnants of the Islamic State still uh, in the region. It was also a serious prospect that it was an Iranian-backed militia. Now, Iranian-backed militia is a media term. These become very important factual uh, issues. Subsequently, though, the Americans attribute the missile attack to Iranian-backed militias, Iraqi militias, supported by by the Quds Force, that is the, uh, I suppose it's the covert arm of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard? It's Islamic Revolutionary Guard, yeah. yeah. And so they, yeah, and that's just it. But I mean, just to speak to your point, uh, there's n- no shortage of hostile groups in that region to Western forces, right? So just because there's a rocket attack, it's not obvious who it is. It could be so many, so many different groups. So the attribution here is important. And uh, so, yeah, so there's, a, and this is, will become important for discussions later on. There is this larger Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, which is uh, basically part of uh, the Iranian state. They have, and again, the the group that's responsible for these kinds of attacks is, is the Quds Force. Canada has listed the Quds Force, not the uh, Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, but the specific branch of the Quds Force as a terrorist entity. It's right. listed. Which, How this all pans out, which, we'll discuss which later. Which doesn't matter a whit yeah. in terms of the discussion of international law. Now, yeah. to be clear, the, the Quds Force was not the trigger pullers. I don't think they've been accused of that. It was the militia, the, the actual Iraqi militia. Supported by. Uh, yeah. Allegedly supported by, right? right? So again, the facts are murky on the ground. So what happens on the 29th of December, so two year, two days later, the U.S. strikes five targets uh, reportedly associated with this uh, this Iranian-backed militia in Iraq and Syria. And then on the 31st of December, the this militia allegedly uh, participates in what the Americans call an attack on the U.S. embassy in Baghdad, and specifically the protesters uh, who are protesting U.S. actions, storm the outer wall of the U.S. embassy compound, and the U.S. claims that there's significant damage to embassy property, smashing of the main door, setting parts of the perimeter on fire, etc. The response at that time is the use of tear gas and stun grenades, and this uh, so-called attack or this protest directed at the U.S. US embassy ends by the 1st of January. Now, I mean, an attack, is it an attack, is it not? It's something we're going to have, have to come back uh, to. And what a state's responsibility is for protecting these things. Yeah, we can talk about that as well. And so then uh, things escalate. So we're, we're now on to the 2nd of January, and this is the time of the drone strike against General Soleimani, that is the Iranian general, also uh, killing Abu Mahadi al-Mahandas, who is said to be the Iraqi militia leader, that is the leader of the militia that is uh, tied to this rocket attack on the 27th of December. Uh, and others were killed, I believe, but I don't have the statistics in front of me, and the reporting actually is a bit murky on that. All right, so uh, that's the situation that we all woke up to early in January, and then the Twitter storms begin. All right, so the 4th of January, President Trump tweets out a threat 
to hit 52 Iranian sites, to, quote, very hard if Iran tacked American or U.S. assets. And he also goes on to say, some of these sites are at a very high level and important to Iran and Iranian culture. 5th oh, of January. Man. Trump tweets, the United States will quickly and fully strike back and perhaps in a disproportionate manner. 6th of January. Trump says, they're allowed to kill our people and they're allowed to torture and maim our people. They're allowed to use roadside bombs and blow up our people and we're not allowed to touch their cultural sites. It doesn't work that way. 6th of January, the Iranian president, Rouhani, Again, this, this Twitter stuff, it'd be probably better for the world if Twitter was shut off. <laughs> Iranian President Rouhani tweets, those who refer to the number 52 should also remember the number 290, which is a reference to flight IR-655, which was a civilian airliner, listeners may recall, that was shot down by the United States Navy in 1988 based on a mistaken air defense action. So that is that they thought it was, a, the Americans thought it was a fighter jet. 8th of January, Iran launches a missile attack against a military base in Iraq, where U.S. troops are stationed, as well as a secondary facility near Erbil Airport in Iraq. Minimal damage is reported, and Iran says it has taken and concluded proportionate measures in self-defense under Article 51 of the U.N. Charter in a letter that it issues that same day to the U.N. We'll come back to the significance of that in a second. Also, of course, very tragically, that evening, 8th of January, an Iranian missile shoots down Ukraine International Airlines Flight PS-752 near Tehran, Tragically, as listeners will know, 57 Canadians are among the 176 people killed. Uh, but more than that, 138 of those people had listed their final destination as Canada. And for those of you who are involved in the post-secondary environment, you'll know that uh, Iranian international students are very common on our Canadian campuses. And, and a number of those, a significant number of those persons killed were Iranian nationals who were enrolled in post-secondary programs, including three at my institution, and I believe one at yours. Yeah, and, and one alumni. One alumni. All right. Uh, and then our last event, which will serve as the framework for our discussion on the 9th of January, the U.S., very late, I have to say, supplies its own letter to the U.N., and in that letter it says, in accordance with Article 51 of the Charter of the United Nations, I wish to report on behalf of my government that the United States has undertaken certain actions in the exercise of its inherent right of self-defense. And then it lists an escalating series of armed attacks by the Islamic Republic of Iran and Iran-supported militias on U.S. forces and interests in the Middle East region, including the 27th of December missile barrage. Okay, so... So that's our fact pattern. That's our fact pattern. So how do we unpack that from the position of international law? Well, Good luck. Well, it, it's, like we say, it's, it's kind of a, almost a, a classic international law problem. Um, and so we have to, the first thing we have to do is we have to juxtapose two bodies of international law that relate to use of force. I alluded to them earlier. The so-called use ad bellum, the right to use force. In what circumstance can you use military force lawfully in modern international law? Uh, in the older days, we would have called this just war. And when is the war, when is the conflict just? And then on the other side, and we, we have to make sure that we don't conflate these, is the concept of use and bellow. In, regardless of the legitimacy of that use of force, what sort of violence can lawfully be undertaken during the course of an armed conflict? And so those are two separate but equal principles of public international law, and let's right. deal with them in sequence. Right. Like, to summarize, yeah, you have to be able to have the right reasons to use force, and you have to then also do it in the right way. You do, and of course, the, the fact that you didn't have the right reasons to use force in the first place doesn't then 
vitiate your obligation to meet the use and bellow rules. Right. So to put it another way, the fact that you are unlawfully using force under the UN Charter doesn't mean you are then permitted to do, engage in a war crime. Or, or if your opponents engage for the wrong reason, doesn't mean that you can do war crimes on them either. Right. Which is will be important That's in just a minute. That's why these are separate and distinct bodies of law. As they should be. Okay, so the first point, and so let's start with the use ad bellum. When can one use force lawfully in international law? And the starting point is to realize that the the limitations on use of force are, are very dramatic in the post-war period because of the principles articulated in the United Nations Charter, which also now have what's known as customary international law, resonance, and more than that, they're, they're known, popularly known as use kogans. In other words, they have preemptive equality. They rebut any contradictory principle of public international law. They, I sometimes compare it to a constitutional grundnorm. They're an underlying principle against which other principles cannot uh, surpass, right? That, that other international principles cannot surpass. You can't surpass. actually pass a law that says it's legal to you use You couldn't force, have a treaty. Right? If you had a treaty that said, well, as between the two of us, state A and state B, we're going to ignore the international principles on use of force and we're going to use force as we will. Well, no, that would violate this peremptory norm on uh, that bars the use of force except in limited circumstances. This is, this is the, the ground game of yeah. international law. So these right? would be cardinal principles of yeah. international law, right? That's so a better way of putting it. The, the starting point is that there, I would say there are three circumstances in which you can use force lawfully in international law, right? And so uh, two of them are anticipated in the UN Charter itself. One is implied. Uh, on the periphery, there are arguments that there are other circumstances, but uh, they are not widely recognized, and so I don't think we're going to deal with them, nor are they material in this case. And it's, 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 it's these, this is armed attack and self-defense. Uh, so hold on, hold on a second, because we have to get into armed attack and self-defense once we drill down a second. But basically, you can use force in international law when you have UN Security Council authorization under Chapter 7 of the UN Charter. Right. And so the Security Council... Uh, in where it uh, finds that there's a threat or breach of international peace and security can authorize uh, where other means are unavailable use of force under Chapter 7. And so we saw right. that, for example, very famously, the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait in the early 1990s. There was yeah, textbook definition. Te textbook, right. More specifically in the context of that Gulf War, the UN Security Council passed Resolution 678, which authorized all necessary means to repel Iraq from Kuwait the, the second, and that's not applicable in this case. No. There, there was no UN Security Council authorization. The second prospect is with consent of the territorial state. And so the prohibition on use of force in the UN Charter says that you're not allowed to use force against the territorial integrity or political independence of a member of the UN. All right? And so if that member of the UN, that state, uh, authorizes your use of force, then their interests under 2 sub 4 are not violated. They can say, come on in and defend us. Come on Help. in. They could say, as is the case on the ground in Iraq, come on in, American forces and NATO forces, and assist us in repelling ISIS. And we entitle you to use force on our territory. Now, again, making this distinction between use of bellum and use in bellow, they can't come, they can't say, come on in and you can engage in war crimes. Yes. But they do say that we surrender our sovereign interest to object to your use of force on our territory. And chances are they'll have a status of forces agreement. Well, that's the that, important thing. So yeah. there is going to be a scope or a limitation on that authorization or that consent. And so in this case, the American forces are there for a discernible purpose, that is, as an exercise of collective self-defense against ISIS. Does that include then shooting missiles at the Iranian uh, government in the form of General Soleimani? And the answer, the clear answer to that is no, based simply on the Iraqi government's response to the events of January 2nd. And so if you exceed the scope of your consent, 
then you can't rely on consent as a justification for use of force, which means you've got to fall back on the only other possibility that's open to you, that is self-defense. Right. Okay, and so this is where you wanted to go in talking about self-defense. Yes. And so this requires a conversation about what's known as Article 51 of the UN Charter. And so just to refresh the memory of listeners, Article 51 says that nothing in the UN Charter shall impair the inherent right of individual or collective self-defense if an armed attack occurs against a member of the UN until the Security Council has taken such measures as necessary to maintain international peace and security. And it goes on to say that the, those, that are, those states that, that purport to engage in self-defense are supposed to immediately notify the Security Council that they have done so. And that's why you get these letters to the Security Council. Right. Which, like, uh, hey, guys. <laughs> we've uh, By the way. our right of self-defense. <laughs> now, in the case of the U.S., they used force on the 2nd of January. They didn't issue their letter until the 9th. That's a pretty extraordinary gap in time. It's Christmas, though. Yeah. People are busy. Well, well, I think probably they hadn't thought through the legal theory, to be honest. <laughs> The, I, the, interagency, the interagency process in the U.S. is quite clearly broken. All right. Now, now, when I say the interagency process is broken, it's not meant to be some prickly uh, editorializing. Rather, it's the the manifest uh, uncertainty surrounding the messaging in this case and what appears to be a very chaotic uh, decision-making process that surrounded the events of January 2nd. Let's talk about let's talk about the requirements then of Article 51. Now, the first thing to note is that Article 51 does not create the right of self-defense. It talks about an inherent right of self-defense. Yes. And so uh, the inherent right of self-defense has to be found somewhere else, most likely in customary international law. The question is whether Article 51 somehow circumscribes that customary right. And this is this is a huge debate in public international law. There's an expansionist view that says that there's a parallel concept of self-defense that's governed by custom international law that's not affected by Article 51. There's another view, which probably was the dominant view before 9-11, that says that the Article 51 cuts and limits what would have otherwise Shapes been it, a customary yeah. right of self-defense. And the most important language here is this reference to armed attack occurs. In order to have your right to self-defense, the armed attack must occur under the language of Article 51. So what does that mean? Well, this that I feel what, what's great about this topic is that you just keep burying yourself. Like, what does that mean? What does that mean? What does that? Mean? Yeah, but the, the idea dolls. of an armed attack yeah. is inherently contested. It is contested, and, right? and this is the problem. I mean, the the classic example people use is when did the attack on Pearl Harbor start? Right. Was it when the bomb started to fall? Was it when the planes took off? Was it in the planning phase? Right. Like, I mean, there's so many uh, different interpretations right. when you can actually say an armed attack began. Right. So, so there's two aspects to it. What is an armed attack, and what does occurs mean? Yes. So, armed attack. Is the concept of armed attack is itself contested. The I would say the majority view is that an armed attack requires more than a mere use of force. It requires a, gra- a sufficiently grave use of force, and so a so mere. So it's not just a bunch of guys in a, in like a, a pickup truck. That are, yeah, driving across your border and, and yeah. threatening people right. and coming back. An incidental clash, localized exchange of fire across the frontier. That's probably not enough to be an armed attack in the majority view. Now, the U.S. view is that any use of force is an armed attack. They don't make a distinction. Okay. Uh, so the, the gravity threshold is not, is not recognized by the U.S., although it is, I think, probably more universally recognized outside of the U.S. But so, so basically they, that, that widens their scope of re- response. W- w- widens their scope of, of response. Now, I think... I think we'll come back to how this plays in our facts in a second. The other aspect is the one you alluded to. So when, uh, setting aside what an armed attack is, when does it occur? Occurs, present English tense, suggests that the armed attack must be underway in the sense that it's manifested, the kinetic effects are manifested somehow on the the state that's trying to invoke self-defense. That is the contested issue of imminence. And so uh, you raised the issue of the Pearl Harbor scenario. How imminent must be the kinetic effects before you can say that you've got an inherent right of self-defense. Must you suffer the blow, 
or can you try to preempt the blow? Now, there are, are two views on this. If only I knew someone who wrote a book about this question. Yeah, well, that's what I'm going to get to. <laughs> so uh, amongst those who accept that armed attack occurs allows some aspect of preemption, there are now two views, I would say, generalizing. There's what I'll call the more classic view, which is tied to the so-called Caroline formula, and we've talked about that. So the Caroline was that U.S.-registered steamship that was appropriated by uh, initially the Mackenzie insurgency in 1837 in Upper Canada by the time it became material, mostly uh, Americans who were using the Caroline to shuttle cannon and fighters from the U.S. shore to an occupied island in the Niagara River in order to shell the uh, territory of Canada in the aftermath of the 1837 rebellion. The British officer, a British officer commanding Canadian militia, stole across the river on the night of 29th of December 1837 and sunk the Caroline while at berth on the U.S. side that precipitated an enormous diplomatic conflagration and an almost... Didn't just set it on, he didn't just set it on fire. He threw it over uh, he, like a Niagara Falls. Yeah, it went over Niagara Falls, part of it at least. Uh, the diplomatic fervor that that prompted culminated in an exchange of views, the most famous of which was then U.S. Secretary of State Daniel Webster saying that in order to be legitimate self-defense, the necessity of self-defense must be instant, overwhelming, leaving no choice of means and no moment for deliberation in which the defender does nothing unreasonable or excessive and keeps clearly within the necessity impelling the defense. Now, that language of instant, overwhelming, leaving no choice of means and no moment for deliberation suggests temporal imminence, that if you are going to preempt, it has to be a preemption of something that you can see coming down the pipe, that it's just around the corner. You don't have to suffer the blow. This can't be something six months away. Exactly. Right. Right. Now, I mean, if you read my book, the Webster and formula, everyone should. and everyone should, very reasonably priced at Irwin Law, the Caroline facts themselves don't actually have anything to do with imminence because this ship was being used to support militia that were two weeks into shelling Canada. We were in the middle of an armed attack at that time. Yep. So people have forgotten those facts when they talk about the Caroline formula, but you know, setting aside this sort of historical amnesia on this point, the question of imminence for, uh, I think, probably the majority view, those who accept the idea of imminence as... Uh, opening or broadening the circumstances in which you can use self-defense, probably will agree that you're allowed to use self-defense in what Joran Dinstein calls interceptive uh, capacity. That is, the missiles are in the air, they haven't crossed your border, they haven't exploded uh, in your cities, but you can see them coming. Right. Can you respond to intercept and engage in interceptive self-defense? Yes. Most people would say that. Yes. The people would go one step further. They would say that, well, not only uh, can you respond to, to things that have been launched that are in course, but you can also respond where everything is in place for the attack, even though it hasn't been launched. Yeah, so they're sitting there. The missiles are fueled. Uh, there's a guy sitting there with a, with a match. He's ready to light it. Is that legal? Right, and so you know, one way of putting that is uh, you can respond where there's an immediacy of a concrete armed attack, right? Which is objectively verifiable because one of the problem, problems here is how do you know what's going to happen in the future, right? So the, the more distant the prospect of the armed attack, the less clear it is that you know what's going to happen. Right. right? Because uh, the future is impossible to predict. Sure. All right. And so that's about as far as most people would go. The Bush doctrine from 2003 went even further. This was in the lead up to the Iraq War of 2003 and started talking about what popularly, uh, you know, I would call more preventive form of self-defense, which is you've got a malice, a forethought, you're developing the capacity to build weapons of mass destruction. It's only a matter of time, so we're going to hit you now, right? And that is universal, well, ex- universally too strong. Outside of, outside of a handful of states, that is a considered uh, 
verbatim. That is considered too extreme. Um, and even the U.S. has rolled back on, on that aggressive position since 2003. Now, I, I will also say that, you know, setting aside this question of imminence, there's a different school of thought that's basically abandoned the idea of imminence and started talking about sort of a cacophony of variables which justify a form of preemptive uh, use of force, setting aside the timeline, right? And so the most famous of that is the so-called Bethlehem Principles. Uh, Daniel Bethlehem was the legal advisor oh, right. for yes, the Foreign course, Commonwealth yeah. Office mm-hmm. in the UK. And so he says that uh, in deciding whether you can use force before the armed attack manifests itself, you can look at the nature and immediacy of the threat. So immediacy is one aspect, but also the probability of the attack, whether the attack is part of a concerted pattern of armed attack activity, the scale of the attack and the likely injury, and the likelihood that there will be other opportunities to somehow forestall the attack. And so is this your last best prospect of stopping this attack? Now, Bethlehem came up with this in the context of non-state actors, i.e. terrorists. You have eyes on very briefly. They're about to go dark again in the course of uh, some plot that will culminate in some, uh, some armed attack on your territory. Do you have to wait until that armed attack is proximate in time? Or can you use uh, armed force to take them out in that last best opportunity. Now, the Bethlehem principles are accepted by the U.S. and the U.K. for the most part, as I understand it, but are not so much from other states. And so the extent there's state practice on this, it's very limited. I mean, that's a, re- that's a really interesting idea. Um, you know, when I was in the U.K. for 10 years. Actually, I got to meet uh, Mr. Bethlehem. It's a, So it's interesting to hear that. Um, I, I, we should do a whole episode on that uh, because I think that's really interesting in the context of emerging threats like cyber threats, chemical weapons in the hands of terrorists, all these kinds of things. That's really, that's not here, but that's, but I think it suffice to say for now that that isn't universally accepted. No, it's very far far from universally accepted. So, I mean, it's interesting to see if that's evolving. You can see the policy rationale though, right? Absolutely. Especially with a non-state actor who's a murky, uh, a murky antagonist. And even with a a state actor who's got weapons of mass destruction, it's too late. Or cyber or, you know, yeah. So you can see why they want to broaden the orbit of, of circumstances where you can preemptively use uh, force to forestall a perceived threat, but not without risk. That's with considerable risk, and because <laughs> because the 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 more you relax the imminence requirement, the more you trench on another requirement in custom international law of self defense, and that is necessity. And so uh, the use of force in self defense has to be necessary. There has to be no reasonable alternative means of forestalling the feared armed attack or the actual armed attack, as the case may be. And so that necessity, diplomacy is not going to work. There's no other way of stopping the armed attack other than you yourself using armed force. And the, the more distant the threat that you fear, you can see how it becomes more and more difficult to say that it's necessary to use armed force to forestall that threat because there's a whole bunch of intervening time and potentially intervening efforts that can be undertaken to forestall that prospect. Sure. The other aspect here, and I'll mention uh, in terms of the requirements, and I think it's probably tied to necessity, there has to be an immediacy in your use of self-defense. Right. And so that says that what immediacy is really about is, look, you can't just sit on your hands and wait and wait and wait, and then six months after you've suffered an arm attack, say, I'm smacking you now. Right? That, there's no immediacy. There's no proximity in time. And so it's very, very difficult to say that there was a necessity for you, you to use force to forestall an armed attack that seems to have been completed in the past, but now you sort of uh, reinvigorate 
uh, long in the future and say, oh, well, I've, I've, I, you know, I, I basically put on the shelf my right of self-defense and, and now I'm going to take it off my shelf and I'm going to use it against you. Right. It's not like a point you can like use it. It's not like a, like a coupon or Because a... then you get tit for tat and that's called retaliation or reprisals. Well, I was going to say it's a reprisal. Yeah. It's a reprisals. Yeah. So it's, uh, it, it kind of reminds me of a rain check. There's no rain checks here, yeah. right? You ha- if you're going to respond, you have to respond immediately. We're trying to avoid you know, an older principle of law, the Hammurabi's law, an eye for an eye is the idea that you, you can gouge an eye in response to the loss of an eye. The idea of retaliation, tit for tat, that's not part of self-defense, neither in domestic law nor international law. Yeah, it's, it's not, you don't, you, you respond, uh, well, it's interesting, there, there's different scholars who, who've written about this, but the idea, like, what the role of punishment is highly circumscribed. Can't be punitive. It's not yeah. self-defense if it's punitive by definition. Yeah. Okay. So it'll be roughly the equivalent in a domestic context. You get in a bar fight on day one. Four days later, you hunt down the person while they're sitting on a park bench and, bench and you punch them. That's not self-defense. I like how we bring up Oshawa every week. <laughs> okay. And then the requirement, the last requirement uh, that we'll mention in terms of the customary requirements of self-defense is the idea of proportionality. Now, proportionality comes up in a couple of different ways in international law, but for our purposes in this discussion, proportionality means that your use of force is limited in character and scale and effect to that which is reasonably necessary to meet the permissible objectives of self-defense, that is to stave off the armed attack. All right. And so if... You can stop the armed attack with a drone. That would meet proportionality. It would be disproportionate if you nuke Tehran. Yes. Setting aside the issue of whether that would be a war crime, and it would. Okay, so I guess one last issue is the question of attribution. And so if you're going to use force against another state in self-defense, the armed attack that you're defending against has to be attributable to that state. Yes. If it, in fact, is done by militias, in what circumstance will the conduct of that militia be attributable to the state, in this case, Iran. And the governing rule here is that it's attributable to the state where the militia or the non-state actor is acting under the instructions of or under the direction or control of that state, in this case, Iran, in carrying out the conduct that constitutes the armed attack. Not just generic control, and this comes up in a different context, but for our purposes in this discussion, control in relation to the very act that constitutes the armed attack. Right. And short of that, you've got real problems in terms of attribution. So that's our use ad bellum discussion. Right. So we have to apply all these principles going forward. But before we get easy to Easy peasy. Yeah, right, easy peasy. But before we get there, let's talk about the so-called use in bellow. That is... We're only halfway done. Uh, otherwise known as the law of armed <laughs> conflict, otherwise known as international humanitarian law. Yes. These are the rules that govern what sort of violence you can use in an armed conflict. So they apply to an armed conflict situation. Now, the threshold for an armed conflict will vary depending on the sort of armed conflict we're talking about. In practice here... We're really talking about an international armed conflict, and the threshold for an international armed conflict is very low. And let's accept for the sake of argument that there was a state of armed conflict, international armed conflict, as of the December 27th, because the conduct of the militias in question could be attributed to Iran. All right. Right. So there's an international armed conflict. Uh, what rules apply here? Well, you know, the first rule I think that's most important is the so-called principle of distinction. Parties to a conflict must at all times distinguish between civilians and combatants. And so you can only direct attacks against combatants. You cannot intentionally direct attacks against civilians. That's the principal distinction. And to do so, to intentionally direct an attack against a civilian is what's known as a war crime. And there are various manifestations of how we would phrase that war crime, but it includes not just attacking the civilian population, but also attacks against civilian objects that are not military objectives. And so hospitals, schools, residential premises, 
More than that, directing attacks against buildings dedicated to religion, education, art, science, or charitable purposes, that is expressly a war crime, as is extensive destruction and appropriation of property not justified by military necessity. All right, so that's all war crime territory. On top of that, under U.S. domestic law, if you commit a war crime, you go to jail, and amongst the war crimes that are cross-referenced in U.S. law, attacks or bombardment against towns, villages, dwellings, or buildings which are undefended, or in bombardments, attacking buildings dedicated to religion, art, science, or charitable purposes. Right? And so those are from the Hague Convention 4, 1907, tied into U.S. law. Right? So those are war crimes in U.S. law and are war crimes in international law. Second principle I'll mention is the principle of precaution. The parties to a conflict must take all feasible precautions to protect the civilian population. In other words, you do due diligence to ensure that you're not targeting the civilian population. Now, a failure to take these precautions is not per se a war crime, but it is a violation of international law, and the state that fails to take these precautions is what's known as responsible. It is responsible for that malfeasance. Right. The, the law acknowledges that accidents happen, things break, whatever, but you have to be able to show that you did everything you could to avoid uh, killing people or kill, killing, uh, killing civilians. Killing civilians, right. And then finally, one last international law issue, and then we're going to jump into applying these to our facts. Article 3 bis. So, so yeah, I had to learn what BIS meant. Yeah, basically an addendum to Article 3, sort of a supplementary in between Article 3 and Article 4. Article 3 BIS of the Chicago Convention on International Civil Aviation, which was added to the Chicago Convention uh, after the downing of KEL, Korean Airlines 007, by the Soviet Union over Siberia in the mid-1980s. It provides that contracting states to the Chicago Convention, which, by the way, include Iran, Every state must refrain from resorting to the use of weapons against civil aircraft in flight, and in the case of interception, the lives of persons on board and the safety of the aircraft must not be endangered. Right. All right. So that's our international law backdrop. Do you want to march through each of these facts and see how the facts that we started with line up with these international principles? As long as this is not a test. <laughs> okay. Well, let's, let's, let's try. Oh, God. All right. So remember, December 27th, the rocket attack on the Iraqi base that results in one U.S. fatality and injuries amongst Iraqi and U.S. military personnel. So uh, is that an armed attack? The question is, it, from the U.S. perspective, it would be because uh, it was, you know, the U.S. charges. It was an Iranian backed militia so militia that was either receiving funds direction well, supplies that, that matters right oh it does so it was, um, i think you're right it was an armed attack it probably crosses that threshold yeah the question as to whether iran is responsible for it uh, is a question of fact and it requires that direction or control in relation to this specific missile attack i would say the fact that Soleimani was killed with the guy who did it probably suggests that yes it was well the, um the, but the, well yeah, so that might be the U.S. view. <laughs> that would probably be the U.S. view. It's probably also my view, but I mean, I, I appreciate that I, that might be contested. So it has to be something that that did Iran control. Yes. I mean, my intelligence background would suggest, but this is the, this is why these countries use proxy forces, right? right? Because they can lawfare. claim that we're you know we're arms length from these guys. Lawfare. Yes, we support that lawfare exactly. Yeah. We can support this mission, whatever. I mean, I think I think it's it's fairly well known by amongst people who study these things that Iran is not un unfrequently supports these organizations and encourages them to engage in this kind right. of behavior. So, But it does matter about the degree of encouragement or support, and, and it has to oh, reach the level of effective control. Well, think about Nicaragua. Yes. In that case, the Americans were backing the Contras, and the International Court of Justice said the mere supply of materiel 
was not enough to attribute the actions the of decision. the Contras yeah. in using force to the United States, right? So the, the, I know it's salami slicing, but it goes both ways. <laughs> right, right. In terms of supporting proxy forces. So, so the key takeaway here is that just saying Iranian-backed isn't enough. You need to actually unpack the facts and establish a degree of control before you can make a legal judgment as to whether this insurgency or militia is a proxy of the Iranian state and, and can, can be conflated to it for purposes of international law. So All I right. think you're wrong. So December 29th, mm-hmm. the U.S. strikes five targets associated with the militia in Iraq and Syria. What is the legal justification for that use of force? It's uh, to respond to the uh, rocket attack and to prevent it from happening again. On what legal theory? On what legal theory that you have the right to defend yourself and to defend it from happening again. So if you can identify those groups which have been a part of this, you're effectively trying to take them out to protect your people in the neighborhood. Uh, Yes, although, again, the idea of preempting future attacks starts to look like something not tied to self-defense unless... You can show that there's a prospect of a renewal, a renewal. of the attack. If this was a one-off, it's punishment. It's right. Then it gets into reprisal territory, and so you're going to have to show uh, either that this was an immediate response to an existing that, that manifests an existing right of self-defense that's both necessary and proportional, and probably on the facts it's not far off. Or if you're going to say that it's somehow justified by the prospect of some future additional attack, you have to show that that future additional attack is imminent if you accept that imminence is a permissible a ground for uh, preemptive self-defense. All right. So, but I mean, we're only talking about a period of two days here. Two days, right? So, I mean, so I'm wondering, like, I mean, but also I think the thing is if the U.S. had responded within a couple of hours... It'd be, cl- could it'd be you- cleaner. It'd be cleaner, but would you have been able to track who actually right. did it if you want to be sure? So, I mean, the, the law is a little tough there it's a because bit tough. you want to be sure that you know who did it and then, because if you responded and got it wrong, that would be even worse. Yeah. So all you're saying, this is an ongoing campaign, and this was just one tactical event and an ongoing armed attack. I don't think that's an unreasonable argument. Right. So the 29th of December probably looks a bit cleaner. Now, the one of the issues is, where was the force used? Iraq and Syria. Did Iraq give consent? If Iraq had given consent, then we wouldn't even have to talk about a self-defense justification. If we're talking about Syria... Well, we'll get to that in a second because we have to talk about the but concept this, of unwilling or unable. Well, yeah, and I think well, I think just before we get there, just a quick question: um, the fact is, if you're in an area at the, because of the consent of a state, and you're attacked, what matters more: your right of self-defense or the fact that you're there because of consent? Well, it, so the, it, it really depends. So, what matters, what changes in the circumstances, is the legal justification you offer up. If, if you are using force on the territory of Iraq with Iraq consent, then you don't have to have a use at bellum conversation. Right. If you don't have Iraq consent, then you're going to have to squeeze your justification into one of the extant justifications for using force under the UN Charter, that is Security Council Resolution, not here, not here. or self-defense. Right. So if you can't get consent, you in practice, you're going to have to rely on self-defense. That's right. why you have to have the conversation about self-defense. If Iraq had given consent, we wouldn't need to have the conversation about self-defense. Okay. Okay. We don't even think they were consulted. Who knows? I don't know the facts. 31st of December. So this is the alleged attack, to use the U.S. expression, by allegedly the militias on the U.S. embassy in Baghdad. Now, is that an armed attack? That's a really good question. Mm. Um, A rock... I think we can point to a rocket attack on something and say, yeah, okay, attack. Um... Protests that turn super violent? Much, much harder. Harder. Right. It's hard to see this as a use of force. It's not even clear that uh, 
the militias necessarily were acting in a sort of paramilitary way. They were protesters, apparently egged on perhaps by the militias, but were these fighters uh, bearing arms, using weapons, etc.? But I mean, if you're, I mean, I'm going to be way too generous to Trump here, way too generous to Trump. But I, I'm wondering if you're looking at this attack on the embassy and you're thinking of Benghazi. Yeah, you got Benghazi fever. Benghazi fever, uh, which was a pretty serious attack sure. on uh, where people died. Right. Like, I mean, that was... Different facts. Different facts, but I think if you're seeing these two things, is it totally unreasonable to, to de-link them? Well, maybe, but then the issue becomes uh, the situation is dealt with with stun grenades and tear gas. It comes to an end on the 1st of January. Right. At so that it's point, over. Right. Does, does you, do you still have some kind of residual right to engage in self-defense? It's problematic. Very problematic, I would say. So then we get to the next day, which is January 2nd, the drone attack against uh, General Soleimani and Al-Mahandas. getting over food poisoning that day. It was quite a day. <sighs> so is that, is that, first of all, is, is that itself a use of force, the drone attack. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely, okay. You're using so, drones that you're taking So you have to justify it. Can you justify it uh, uh, using consent from the Iraqi government? No, you cannot. No, you cannot, because the Iraqi government is quite emphatic that it never consented. Therefore, you have to justify it with use of another principle of international law that means you've got to rely on self-defense because there's no Security Council resolution. Uh, is this self-defense? This is tricky. Right. Um, for... Over a decade and a half, uh, Iran has been directing attacks at U.S. forces, U.S. personnel in the region, uh, killing hundreds, possibly thousands of U.S. personnel. Uh, could you see, and again, I'm being way too generous here, but I'm just saying, if I'm putting on my America hat here, could you make the argument that this person has been responsible for an ongoing series of attacks against the United States for some time. So that would be my first point. So Second there's an point, ongoing armed attack. Ongoing armed attack. So, okay. let's, so, let's so you don't have to worry about immediacy. What I'm saying is he's planned, he has he has planned and carried out a series of attacks and it is, he is planning to conduct a more series of attacks. Because the evidence that Trump and, and the Trump administration have used, and I'm not saying I believe it, but that there was a plan for a series of attacks against U.S. Embassy. That comes out later, Yeah. but uh, at the time. But that's a different legal theory. It's a different legal theory, but what I'm saying is that, like, you know, is if you're talking about self-defense, could you argue that this individual, Soleimani, the other guy who was part of the militia, you could maybe make the argument that he was also part of some of these series of attacks, but this is an individual who has, over a decade and a half, carried out attacks against the United States and was likely planning more. Okay, so he's a bad guy. Right, we'll stipulate he's a bad guy. I don't like saying that just because I think it kind of... I don't mean to diminish, I'm not being Diminish it, yeah, yeah. But he's he's someone who has been a part of a series of armed attacks and is likely okay. to be a part of armed so, attacks in the future. So, so yeah. the, the way I see it, there's two possibilities. Right. right. Possibility number one is that, to, to your point, that there's an ongoing, non-discontinued armed attack that goes back in time and it's never been discontinued. The clock has never reset on whether you have to renew a right of self-defense. And so this, uh, you don't have to worry about whether an armed attack has occurred because it has occurred. Yes. And so the only question is whether the use of force in self-defense is necessary and proportional. Yes. And so is it necessary to use a drone against Soleimani to respond to this ongoing armed attack Remember necessity. Necessity is tied to what's necessary to stop, stop it. the armed attack. Yeah. All right. So on the facts, I mean, I can't I can't answer that question because I don't know enough, frankly, about his, his record. Um, that seems like a prospect. I, I you know, that's a prospect. OK. And just just one other thing here we have to focus on in, in the context of using force on the territory 
of Iraq against, in this case, Iran, keep in mind that the self-defense is being exercised against Iran on the territory of a third party, that is, on the territory of Iraq, without its consent. And so can you use force on the territory of that state against the uh, armed attacking state? And this is this uh, thorny dilemma that's really arisen in the context post 9-11 of non-state actors like ISIS uh, who are occupying portions of state territories. Can you direct your use of force against those non-state actors when they are located on the, on the uh, territory of a sovereign state? Uh, and the doctrine that's emerged, and it's very controversial, is the idea of unwilling or unable. And so if the territorial state is unwilling or unable to suppress the attacking entity, then uh, as part of necessity, the idea is that uh, you can use force against the the attacker, e- even in, in the absence of consent from the territorial state. And as I say, that's very contentious, and it would come up in this case. And proportionality... It's not unreasonable. Is it proportional while a targeted drone strike taking out a commander whose removal is necessary for the purpose of stopping this armed attack, probably proportional. Now, the other possibility is that what you're going to argue is that there's a new right of self-defense, that what happened in the past, everything was reset, there's not an arm-going armed attack, instead your fear of an armed attack in the future, attacks on an embassy, etc. And there's been this attack on the embassy, there's going to be more attacks. So we're just looking at the... the What's in the future? You're looking forward-looking. And if you look forward... Then, if the armed attack hasn't occurred, you're going to have to fall back on that question of imminence, um, and so uh, we can have. Or that. if you're President Trump, eminence with an e. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Sorry, we all make. You're typos. not on Twitter as much. Typos. You're missing out all the fun, Craig. All right. So the question, though, in that case, is: Is it sufficiently imminent? Do you apply the Bethlehem principles, or do you apply this idea of temporal imminence? very murky. What becomes very complicated in this case is the American justification. As I say, the interagency process is broken in the U.S. You get all these different the, we've proto-definitions yeah. and arguments and, and what have you, and the briefing to the uh, the secure members of Congress turned out to be, as I understand it, a train wreck based on the statements that these Congress uh, members made when they came out of the briefing. But the, the American justification t- seemed to be tied to the, this issue of imminence. They kept talking about imminence as if they were trying to justify... Uh, an act of self-defense in relation to an armed attack that had not yet occurred. Yes. And I think, and this is crazy. So I think there's really like the, again, the two issues here. One is to me, the explanation keeps changing. Like there's, there's been no consistency. We've had uh, you know, uh, administration officials say this was an imminent, there was an imminent threat. We had someone go on, well, I forget, uh, we, there was someone on TV who basically said, no, there was no imminent. So like the administration can't get its story straight because Look, let's let's just put it out there. Like, there was probably no thought given to any of these questions, and they just he just Trump probably had Benghazi fever, as you called it, and wanted to strike. So, yeah, I mean, to me, the imminence thing doesn't seem to work. Congress doesn't appear to have been persuaded by it, and we should be clear: members of both parties don't seem to be persuaded. Although, there, of course, there's some Trump fans, um, but we don't seem to have. This doesn't seem to be a plausible argument. I made a case maybe earlier on that, you know, maybe this is part of an ongoing series. That doesn't seem to be the the argument that they're making, though. They seem to, be, as you say, they seem to be tying it to this idea of imminence. Yeah. And their letter to the UN, which again was quite late on the 9th of January, it does talk about an escalating series of armed attacks in recent months. But then it goes on and talks about the so-called use of self-defense being designed to deter events in the future. Right. And deterrence is not a justification for use of self-defense, per se. No. Um, and so sort of a deterrence that's not tied to an imminent armed attack. I mean, this is all very novel, murky stuff that they're invoking. That'd be a good idea for a podcast, actually, deterrence in international law. 
<laughs> right. Yeah. Well, deterrence using uh, use of force is very problematic when you try to square it with the rules of self-defense. Nuclear weapons case. Right. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So moving on in terms of marching through our events. So now let's get to the tweets. Oh, right. God. So the 4th of January. This is a hot mess. President Trump tweets out uh, the threat to hit 52 Iranian sites very hard, including Iranian cultural sites. All right. So hitting them very hard, well, you know, setting aside whether at this point, making threats itself violates 2 sub 4 of the UN Charter because UN 2 sub 4 says any threat or use of force. Yeah. And so are these Twitter threats themselves, there's an article in the, new, in the Journal of Use of Force and International Law about, about threats because of all <laughs> this Twitter action we've seen over the years. Everyone seems to ignore the threat, the prohibition on threats of use of force in terms of these discussions. But there's a lot of threats being bandied about. So setting that aside from a use in Bellow perspective, that is the perspective of international humanitarian law, the law of armed conflict, as I suggested, this is a war crime. And everyone readily acknowledged that the threat to hit these cultural sites, remember, I mean, their principle of distinction would be violated and the more ex- specific admonishments about um, destroying property that's not a military objective and specifically destroying cultural uh, property that's not a military objective. These are all war crimes, which are prosecutable in U.S. law, setting aside the issue as to whether... Uh, Trump enjoys absolute state immunity in relation to his own criminal process, which is a fine issue in U.S. law that I leave to the National Security Law Podcast to deliberate on. I'll leave it to them. Yeah, I mean, this kind of broke my heart, actually. Uh, the In the wake of the 2003 Iraq war, there was a lot of cultural property damage. I think the U.S. recognized this, uh, maybe not so much publicly, but in signing on to a number of the Hague treaties, which uh, protect cultural property as a result of this, uh, it, there is actually a tradition of the U.S. trying to protect culture and warfare that stems from the Second World War. The Monuments Men, if you've read the book or seen the movie, uh, attest to this. And it's just so depressing. And the one thing that was good was that uh, the U.S. military, uh, when they were asked about it at a briefing, basically said, we will adhere to the laws of war. Uh, They basically said that we will... They didn't so much contradict the president. They just said, if we fight, we will adhere yeah. to the laws of war, which won't is a good obey thing. an unlawful order. Yeah, which is the key thing. Like, you, right. you just can't do that. I don't understand. If you're saying you're with the Iranian people, but we're going to destroy all of your cultural heritage... That is not smart politically, let alone legally. (laughs) 5th of January. Yes. All right. So Trump tweets, the United States will quickly and fully strike back if attacked by Iran and perhaps in a disproportionate manner. Right. Yeah. No, that's just that literally just. (laughs) Did we not just say that self-defense depends on proportionality? Okay. (laughs) Setting aside what proportionality means in a use in bellow context, we won't even get there. Okay. Uh, It's just it's pretty on its face illegal. Okay. January 6th, Trump says they're allowed to kill our people. They're allowed to torture and maim our people. They're allowed to use roadside bombs and blow up our people. And we're not allowed to touch their cultural sites. It doesn't work that way. It no actually one, works that way. No one is allowed to do any of that. <laughs> no one. <laughs> right? And so uh, an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. Yes. I mean, this, this kind of tit-for-tat justification doesn't Reprisals, work. not great. No one is allowed to do any of that. Nope. Okay, 6th of January. The Iranian president tweets, those who refer to number 52 should also remember the number 290, again, reference to flight IR-655, that civilian airliner shot down by the Americans in a mistaken identity issue in 1988. Uh, that, I think, also raises issues around Article 2 sub 4 in threats of use of force. Do you, think that's, do you, do you read that as a threat? I could see that as a threat. I, I hadn't read it as a threat. Yeah. I just thought to me, like, hey, you say you're going to do this, you're going to do this. That's interesting in the context of what happens after. 
So I think it's possible to view as a threat, although, again, no one really pays much attention to threats these days. They're so commonplace. Thank you, Twitter. All but right. But if you want to make the argument later on, and we're, maybe we'll get to this depending on time, if you want to make the argument this was a terrorist attack, you have a threat out there. That's not good. Yeah. So I think we have to be careful about conflating terrorist attack with use of force in international law, but sure. let's hold that thought. Okay. Yeah. January 8th, this is the uh, Iranian launch of missiles against the... Al-Hassad military base in Iraq, where U.S. forces are stationed and also at the facility near Erbil Airport. Again, minimal damage. Recall that Iran says that it has taken and concluded proportionate measures in self-defense under Article 51 of the U.N. Charter in that letter it issues that evening to the U.N. Security Council. That is, okay, based on your idea of like imminence responding and stuff like that, that is not... It's a stretch. Yeah, yeah. it's a big stretch. The other thing is, too, is actually uh, it's now become... There's media reporting that 11 U.S. soldiers were actually injured in that attack. Were they? Okay, yeah. I, I hadn't seen that. Yeah, okay. so that's a new big thing. So it's... um, uh, It was more serious. I mean, because what was so weird was that after that attack... Trump was saying Trump, everything's good. Everything's great. All is well. He's <laughs> right for relying on his tweet. <laughs> it's just... Anyways, uh, yeah, but apparently they buried the fact that 11 people were actually uh, right. seriously injured in that attack. But to me, uh, the justification for doing that doesn't really seem to be there, but Iran going to Iran. So I, I would I would do the same analysis we just did in, in relation to the January 2nd event. I would say, look, if this is a response to that January 2nd event, we have a huge problem of immediacy. This is now seven days later. As these leaders are slinging insults at each other across Twitter, the Americans have basically said, we're not going to start a war, but we're going to end one if you start it. It's pretty clear from the context that the Americans consider the January 2nd event a one-off. It's very difficult to say that the Americans themselves are in the midst of an ongoing armed attack against Iran. And so for the Iranians to say that they are responding to an ongoing armed attack in this circumstance is very difficult. Moreover, their response is hardly immediate in the context. Uh, so I think there's probably a difficulty in that respect. If they were to argue that this is a new right of self-defense because the Americans are on the cusp of an imminent attack, what's the evidence of that? Yeah. Right? And so I don't think the events of January 8th satisfy the requirements of self-defense. Now, that night, of course, tragically, the Iranian missiles shoot down Ukraine International Airlines flight PS-752. 176 people are killed. 57 were Canadians. 138, though, had listed their ultimate destination as being Canada, many of those, of course, being students registered in Canadian post-secondary programs. Yeah. So this is... The blow, I have to, yeah, just to reiterate what you're saying, the blow to Canadian universities has been substantial. Yeah. Uh, it's weird that so the human, universities human are... tragedy, right? Yeah, born the brunt of this, but... And, and, you know, in the context of KAL-007 in the mid-'80s, in the context of the downing of Malaysian Airline 17, in the context of, as President Rouhani already said, the downing of IR-655 in 1988... The downing of civilian airliners in these contexts, it, uh, it, it's a recurring, albeit not all that common, but a, enough of a recurring pattern that it's really concerning. So the question I have is, what is the responsibility of Iran in this context? And is there a war crime in this context? Assuming the Iranians are right in saying that they did not intentionally target this aircraft. There seems to be a failure of due diligence. Ah, okay. So that's right. important because this came up also with the Malaysian Airlines downing over Ukraine, uh, which is attributed, I believe, correctly to the Ukrainian uh, insurgents, Russian-backed insurgents in eastern Ukraine. The question as to whether they thought they were shooting down a Ukrainian fighter plane matters because if they thought they were shooting at a fighter plane, that's one thing. 
But if they thought they were shooting at a civilian aircraft, they would be then intentionally targeting a civilian object, and that would be a war crime. In the absence of that intent, well, if they were mistaken about the identity, it's hard to prove the intent. And so in this case, I think it's hard to say that this was a war crime unless you can prove intent to down this aircraft. On the other hand, I think there is state responsibility. That is a violation of observance of the principle of precaution. In this now hot conflict, are you taking sufficient steps uh, as a matter, as a precautionary matter, to distinguish between legitimate military targets and civilian targets? And if you've violated the principle of precaution, it may not be a war crime, but Iran has state responsibility. Right. And under the doctrine of state responsibility, if you are responsible for a breach of international law, you have an obligation to make reparations, which can come in the form of restitution. Restitution is impossible in this case because you can't put this aircraft back together again. You can't, uh, you can't bring these people back to life. Thereafter, though, if you can't make restitution, you're obliged to pay compensation. Yeah. All right. There's also a violation of Article 3 BS. Yeah, uh, unequivocally. you're not supposed to use military equipment right. against and, an aircraft. And there's no intent requirement there, so uh, I think an unequivocal violation of 3BIS, again, triggering state responsibility. Uh, recall that, Iran, I just checked that, Iran is a party to 3BIS. Okay. N- now, s- the issue with state responsibility is always going to be a venue issue. Assuming there's an obligation to pay compensation, how do you extract it from Iran? Very difficult to do, because if you wanted to do so, let's say Canada wanted, to, on behalf of its, its murdered c- citizens, wishes to take... Iran to the International Court of Justice, you have to find a jurisdictional basis for the International Court of Justice to take the case. Very difficult to do in the absence of some treaty that entitles uh, Canada to take Iran to the International Court of Justice. Now, it turns out the Chicago Convention actually does have a provision, and specifically Article 84, which does give the ICJ jurisdiction in relation to disputes under the Chicago Convention. That actually uh, came up in relation to the downing of Iranian Airline 655. Uh, There, Iran and the United States actually went to the International Court of Justice. Iran took the United States to uh, the International Court of Justice, pointing to this provision in the Chicago Convention, as well as uh, Article 14 of what's called the Montreal Convention. That is the International Convention on the Suppression of Unlawful Acts Against Civil Aviation. And so there is a jurisdictional hook here that uh, one might be able to use on the facts of, of this particular case in this latest instance. The, the prospect of suing domestically is also very difficult because if you sue domestically, Iran would be entitled to what's known as state immunity uh, in relation to civil liability in the court's of Canada. The one carve out to that, and I'll just end my little discussion on this, is the Justice of Victims of Terrorism Act, which we've talked about in the past on this podcast, which was introduced by the last government uh, about seven or eight years ago. And it says that any person that has suffered loss or damage in or outside Canada after 1985, 85 matters because that was the Air India bombing. Right. right? So that's that's what this is tied to, um, that has been committed and is punishable uh, under uh, the criminal code as a terrorism offense may bring a civil action effectively. And so if you meet the requirements of what would otherwise be a criminal terrorism offense in the criminal code, you can civilly sue someone for damages. And more than that, this act abolishes state immunity for states that are listed by the Canadian government as not enjoying state immunity, and Iran is one of those. Right. And so the, but quest- the issue the question is, the, the issue is, is 
is it a terrorist attack? Well, that's it. And it's not just any action by the state. It has to be a terrorist act. And uh, it's interesting that... More than that, it has to meet the definition of a terrorism offense in the criminal code. Code, uh, which is 8301, all that stuff. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, I, that's the issue here. Even if, like, I mean, there's just all these calls to list the Islamic Revolutionary Guard uh, Corps in, in its entirety. Uh, Tamaj, you know, has written about why this would be difficult. We don't have time to get into that. But I think even if it was listed, uh, there's some people saying that you could then use the Justice for Victims of Terrorism Act to me, this is, it appears on the I, face of it, but I mean, I think it'd be hard. Again, I, I would point to the tweet that was issued earlier. Yeah. Could you put, then point to that and say, well, this is a clear threat? And then they. But, but a threat to down their own airliner? Well, it was Ukrainian. Or, or down the airliner in, in Iranian I space? agree. It doesn't make sense on its face. I'm just yeah, saying that sure. that tweet may change some things I, if, you, if we can consider it a I threat. I think you'd have to prove, because these are all intentional crimes. Under sure. the criminal code, there's an intent requirement. You'd have yep. to prove an intent. Yeah, that's um, going to be hard. That, that would be very, very hard. More than that, the definition of terrorist activity, so there's two subcomponents of it. The first component, there's a list of international conventions which constitute terrorism yes. conventions, one of which is the suppression of acts, unlawful acts against aviation security. Right. So could you make those aviation security provisions in that convention as implemented in Canadian criminal law work? Possibly, but I think you'd still have an intent problem. Under the more generic definition of terrorist activity, uh, you've got you know use use of violence of the sort that endangers a person's uh, health safety kills a person fine uh, but it has to be done for a political religious or ideological purpose with the intent to intimidate a, a population or a government you'd have to prove all that and more than that there's a carve out and that carve out says it does not apply to an act war mission committed during an armed conflict that its time and place is in accordance with custom international law or conventional international law and so that means if it's complying with the law of armed conflict it can't fit within the definition of terrorist activity. Now, my argument would be you're not complying with the law no, of conflict clearly, because yeah. you didn't meet the standards in terms of the principal precaution. Yeah. But that's a whole lot of stuff that you're going to have to prove as part of your civil action. Yep. And, and it's just really, yeah, it's, I don't on think it's the panacea. On top of finding an offense that works, right? So on top of that, you'd have to prove that there was some underlying offense, a terrorism offense tied to this idea of terrorist activity that fit. But this is the limit of the law, right? I mean, at some point, what, what, what strikes me is that I've been trying to monitor what the Canadian government's been doing in the aftermath of this attack. And you could look at the number of phone calls that we've had, the number of discussions that Trudeau's had with European countries, as well as other countries who do have embassies and interests in Iran. And what's interesting is, like, I, I think clearly there's coordination going on. I think what this is going to come down to, if there's going to be any kind of compensation, and I hope there is, it's going to be Europeans who do have good ties to Iran, not in the, like in the sense that they're best friends, but in the sense that they are, that's the venue through which Iran tends to negotiate with the rest of the world. Um, it's going to be a political thing, right? Yeah, We're, this is going to come down to political pressure by European states on Iran to compensate victims for this particular attack. Yeah. And that's how it's, law might not be able to solve yeah. this. And politi the political dimension is complicated by the fact that we have no diplomatic, direct diplomatic representation in Iran, which is raising all sorts of difficulty in terms of consular assistance to the bereaved families of the victims of this air downing. I mean, you and I have both made the point that the idea that diplomatic uh, diplomatic presence rewards a state for good behavior as opposed to a necessary precondition on the preservation of some chain of communication, uh, well, I, I take the view that uh, diplomatic relations is not a reward, it's a necessity. All right, so we've run out of time here. It's yeah, a, it's a long it's podcast. A long podcast. I hope... Uh, I hope we did an okay job and that we still have about three or four people listening to us. Uh, we sound a bit glum at the end of the week for us, maybe a little bit tired, and it's not the happiest of topics. Uh, and, uh, I, well, that's it for me, and I suppose uh, we will be talking to all of you in the near future. Yeah, something horrible will happen. <laughs> okay. Thanks very much, everyone. Cheers. <laughs>